please stand for the scripture reading. We do this out of respect for God's word as a reminder that we stand in authority under, under scripture. And today it comes from Genesis 3, 8 through 24. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all other livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I surely will multiply your pain and and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. It is true and is given out of his love. You may be seated. Awesome. Thanks, Tristan. Yeah, that might be the longest passage we've ever read. So thanks, Tristan, for doing a great job. You weren't, weren't joking about that 25 minutes needed for those announcements today. So um, just to reiterate what the announcement was, if you are new this, this morning and you would like to have lunch with us, we would love for you to join us for lunch right after church. No need to RSVP. We have plenty of food for everyone. It's a great way to get connected and, and uh, deeper uh, relationships here at the church as we pursue Jesus together and try to be a place where all people can experience the love of Jesus through love of his people. We would love for you to join us for lunch today. So um, as as we get going, just a little bit of honest confession here. Um, I love living in Colorado. I hate living in Colorado in January, especially January through March. These are the worst months to be here as citizens of Colorado, right? The days are short and cold. It's windy. Uh, we're all kind of feeling the, the gloom of after coming through the holidays. I feel a little bit out of shape. I'm just tired all the time, and it just doesn't feel like there's anything in our uh, state here that helps me get through some of these doldrums of these coming few months. And what I've noticed about myself is that in the midst of the, the doldrums of January, some of the, the uh, uh, surface-level depression we can all feel with the short days and the no sunlight and all those things that we're used to in the summer is that 
that lack of sunshine, that lack of things to do, that lack of time in the outdoors, all of those things can stir in my heart this awareness that it feels like there's something missing from my life. Do you guys ever have that where you feel like there's something out there you just haven't quite yet experienced and your heart longs for something that you haven't yet tasted that you know is existing out there? You feel like there's some joy missing in your life? Uh, Sometimes when we come through the holidays, you have time with family or loved ones, and there's those special moments that you have in life, only a few times it feels like, where, where you're with someone you love, and, and you're, you're hugging them, you're holding them close, and you just feel like even though you're hugging someone, you can't quite get close enough to them because you love them so much. You feel like if it was possible, you'd like to, to fold your soul into their soul because of that longing you have for a deeper connection than you're experiencing. I, I, am I the only one that's experienced that before? I think, I think these are kinds of things that are hard to put to words, but that we have all have seen glimpses of before, right? Sometimes when you see a, a beautiful sunrise here in Colorado, right? The, the snow on the mountains and the pinks and the purples reflecting off of it. And it makes you think, boy, there's something out there that is, that is, is hinting at a joy and a longing and a desire that I haven't quite tasted yet that I want to experience. Sometimes when you uh, read a good book or watch a, an awesome movie or, or listen to a powerful song, it's like it hints as an answer to a question that you didn't even know you were asking. And I, I think these kinds of things are something we've all experienced, but like I said, it's really hard to put words to what it is I'm trying to say. But I kind of need to slow down here in the beginning because what we're going to do for the next 30 minutes or so all comes back to this theme, this idea of do you have desires and longings in your heart that you have not yet felt they've been satisfied? Do you feel homeless at times, like you're wandering, looking for a home and a place to belong that you haven't yet experienced? I think this is something that is essential to the human condition. All of us as humans have felt this before, and I think that no one has put words to it, as I'm struggling to do this morning, no one has put words to it as well as C.S. Lewis. And one of his sermons he gave is called The Weight of Glory, and he talks about this concept. And it's actually one of the things that's in C.S. Lewis's writings all over the place. He, refuse, he refers to it as joy or longing or beauty. And so I have a, I have a quote. It's, it's a really long quote. It might even be longer than the passage of scripture Tristan read a little bit ago. So we need to listen to, to what he's saying carefully. One of the things he's going to do is refer to a, a poet named William Wordsworth, who was one of the romantic poets um, from Britain about the 1800s. And he's going to, Wordsworth talked about the same things we're going to talk about this morning that Lewis is talking about. Only for Wordsworth, he referred to it as nostalgia or a longing for his past or memory of something that had happened before. But listen to how C.S. Lewis describes these, these aches and these longings that we all have. He says, our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past, but all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would have turned out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited." I think that's the most poetic way of describing these longings that I'm talking about. Elsewhere in, in Lewis's writing, he refers to it as a song we were all born remembering. 
right? We're all born remembering this song, but we don't know where it came from. And what it is, is something that God has put in each of our hearts to say, there is something else out there that you have not yet fully tasted. And in that longing, in that desire, in that song that you were born remembering is an indicator of what it means for us to be human and to know our identity in light of who Christ really is. So that's what we're going to study this morning. And I'm going to say a word of prayer as we get into this, this uh, study of the Psalms today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to gather as your people. I thank you for the chance to gather as, as people who are exploring what it means to follow you and to are curious about uh, what a life uh, pursuing Christ looks like. I pray that as we open this passage today, as we look uh, to the scriptures, that we would find not the words of a man or the words of me trying to describe them, but we would find the words of you, um, our Savior, our Creator, our Lord, and our Sustainer, that we would see here the truths that our hearts are longing for. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Psalm 90 this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 90. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table. And I forgot to figure out the page number from that. Psalms is right near the middle of the book, though. So just open up to the middle and look for Psalm number 90. And so what we're doing is this is kind of a, a bridge week between New Year's. We did our testimony service on January 1st. Aaron did a great sermon last week on 2 Corinthians 5 and this idea of what it means to have New Year's resolutions where we pursue Jesus this year. Uh, and, and what we're going to do next week is we're going to start a 12 or 13-week uh, study through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is all about what it means to follow Christ in a world that rejects him and in a world that will persecute us if we are true to what Jesus has taught us. And so th- this, uh, that theme of 1 Peter is that we are, we are exiles, that we don't have a home, that we're wandering, waiting for Jesus to return and to give us that home that we're after. And so Psalm 90 hits on a lot of the themes from New Year's and this idea of what are we going to do to characterize our year moving forward. And it hits on a lot of the themes of this idea of being exiles and homeless and looking for a place to belong, those kinds of things. So we're going to study this this morning. If you notice at the top of the book, it says a a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So this is the only psalm we have in the book of Psalms that is written by Moses. Uh, We most likely think that it was written after the Exodus while the Israelites are wandering in the desert. They spent 40 years uh, wandering because they didn't obey God. They stayed on the edge of the promised land and didn't go into their home for 40 years because of their disobedience. And in the midst of that wandering and that time of longing for a place to, to, to not live in a tent any longer, but to live in a home that Moses writes this psalm of worship to God. So let's look at verse 1 of Psalm chapter 90. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a, what a beautiful opening to the psalm. What he does is he, has, he positions our gaze at the most important place that we can ever look, at the character and the attributes of God. He's talking about them as a wandering people, people who don't have a home. And he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, to everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And what, what Moses is doing here is what authors of the Bible or, or prophets and the author of Hebrews or the, the Uh, the Apostle John, there's so many different places in the Bible when the the Bible starts to talk about the character of God, it does two things most common. It refers to God as the creator of everything that exists and as the one who is eternal and has existed outside of space and time. If you were here for our Advent study when we went through John 1, that's exactly how John 1 started off, right? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then he goes on to say, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So so two of the most important 
important scriptural concepts that we can go back to is that, that God is the creator of all things and that he has existed before time began. If those things are true, it means that he is the Lord of all that there is. That there is no one who doesn't answer to him and he, as the Lord of all, doesn't answer to anyone. But what we see Moses also drawing our attention to is this idea of longing this idea of a dwelling place. He says, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And, and what that word dwelling place is, is a super important concept to the people of God. It, it's this idea of a place where you feel comfort, a place where you feel safe, a place where you can find refuge. And most importantly, when the Old Testament uses this word dwelling place, it's always the place where the presence of God exists. And so Moses is saying that even though they're a homeless people, a wandering people, their hearts are looking for a place to rest. They're looking for a place of refuge, and they can only find that refuge in the person of God himself. And so, so this is that indicator of that song we were born remembering. Okay, there's something in this verse that when you read it and say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place uh, the, the word home is incredibly powerful, right? That, that's why uh, people on Etsy make a ton of money of selling state logos that say home. I, th- I think Tristan has one of those that has Ohio on it, which we've got to pray for him with the whole longing for the home of Ohio, right? Things like that. You think Colorado is bad in January. Maybe you should go to Ohio. Um, I, I don't know why I'm so mean this morning. I apologize, man. That's <laughs> terrible. Uh, anyway, that wasn't in the notes. That was for free. Um, so this idea of like longing for home, the song we were born remembering is what Moses is getting at here. He's saying that there's something that we, we look for that we haven't quite tasted yet. We're, we're born remembering this song and we can't figure out where we heard the tune from, but it's a reminder that we are looking for home. Yeah, I think that probably the best uh, place in literature that we see this is those, those awesome novels of the Lord of the Rings, right? The, the hobbits, the little halfling people who are a simple people who pursue simple pleasures. But because of the chaos of Middle Earth, they have to leave the Shire in order to go fight the bad guys. And even though they, they leave the Shire, their desire for home never leaves them. And I think that's true for all of us as humans as well, that we have this desire for a home that never leaves us. And so if you look above verse 1 in Psalm 90, you'll see in your Bible a thing that says book 4. And so what we know is that the Psalms were written over a span of hundreds of years, and at some point later on uh, in Israel's history, an editor or a number of editors took the collection of Psalms and they arranged them by topic. And so there's five different books in the book of Psalms, and, and they each have themes and what Psalm, the book four is about is about the time of exile, where after Israel had been a great nation and powerful nation under, under David and Solomon, they had fallen into a time of disobedience. They had not followed the Lord as they had been told. And so because of that, God did what he promised. He disciplined them. He sent them into exile, into Babylon. So they were living in a foreign land. And so when the editor of Psalms is putting these together, he takes a psalm written by Moses 500 years earlier about Israel wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, living in tents. And he puts it here with a group of psalms that talk about what it means to live in exile in Babylon, away from your home, not having the dwelling place that you're after. And what that does is tells us that there's something inherent to being the people of God that means we are a wandering people. We are a homeless people. That the people of God have always been looking for a dwelling place and have not quite been able to experience that. And so we have to ask this question, why, why are God's people homeless? Why does it feel like we're looking for a dwelling place, that we have this, this song we were born remembering that we can't quite sing? What is it about that that leaves us longing and empty and looking for something? And I think the key is found in that idea of in all generations we have been that dwelling places of God is where we've been looking for, and God is everlasting. That's this, that concept of time and generations is where Moses goes next in verse 3. 
He says to God, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And so what what Moses is doing is he's taking all these illustrations that say these things in life that are here one minute and then they're gone the next. Like there's uh, land and vegetation and then a flood will sweep it away. There there is a dream that you're remembering and then you wake up and it's gone. It's it's like a watch in the night. It's like saying life is so temporary. It's like going outside and catching a snowflake in the palm of your hand. It's there. It's unique. It's beautiful. And then it's gone. It melts and it's never going to return again. That's what Moses is saying. Our lives are like. And so we have the temporariness of humanity, the fact that we are finite, that we are small, that we are are destined to die one day, contrasted with the eternality of God. He says all of those things, our life is as but a blink of an eye to God. A watch, a few hours of the night goes by as quickly to God as a thousand years does. What this is doing is not a math equation saying for God 1,000 equals 1. What this is is this, this theological bombshell that says we are nothing like God. We are so temporary and finite. We're here one minute and gone the next. And compared to that, God is eternal. He has always existed from everlasting to everlasting. He will always exist. One of the commentaries I was reading this week was pointing out that that as as humans, we have this, this, it's easier for us to believe that God is eternal, right? Like we we have an an awareness that, okay, something had to have existed before the world. and, and, And so the eternality of God is not necessarily too hard to believe. What is hard to believe is that you and I are finite. It's hard for us to believe that we are not eternal, right? For some reason, when it comes to like thinking about death or the the end of our life, we always have this mindset that says, well, technology keeps advancing, medical uh, uh, technology keeps advancing. So when it's my turn, maybe by then they will have cured this whole death thing that we keep bumping up against. But I, I was doing some research this week. Did you know that in 2022, 26 billionaires died? And just last year alone. And I'm pretty sure if you're a billionaire, you have a lot more access to health care and things that could prolong your life than the resources that you or I have. And so if that's true for every human, if death has a pretty good batting average still, then we have to ask ourselves, why is it that we still rebel against this concept of death? Right? Like you look at these verses and you say, we're so temporary. We're so finite. We're here one minute. We're gone the next. We're like a snowflake that melts and is gone forever. And something in our soul wells up and says, that is not right. That is not the way the world was created to be. That's part of what humanity always feels. There's this awesome poem um, by Dylan Thomas. If you've seen the movie Interstellar, it's in that movie uh, by Christopher Nolan. But listen to the, just the first paraphrase of this or first paragraph of this poem. He says, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And he goes on for for 10 more stanzas to talk about, he's he's encouraging his dad who's on his deathbed saying, don't give up without a fight. Don't, Don't just die and go on to nothing. There's something in what it means to be human that says, I was made for eternality and I shouldn't be passing away. And so this Dylan Thomas author, as far as I know, was not a follower of Christ or a believer in God. And there's something in him, even as an atheist, that says death is not the way it's supposed to be. There is something in us that wants to fight and push back against this idea of being temporary. 
And so if you think back to the, how we started, this idea of, of, of missing something, of feeling like there's something in your heart that you just can't wrap your arms around, there's longings that you have that you just can't quite answer, there's a reason that each of those desires, when you fully lean into those, it always has a tinge of sadness to it, doesn't it? When, when you see something so beautiful it makes you want to cry and you don't know why, or, or when you hear a song that's so powerful and moving that it feels like that, that's, that's hinting at the answer to the question I didn't know I was asking, and it kind of pushes you towards this more melancholy feeling. The reason that that is is because we know deep down that we're finite and that when our death comes, there will be things out there that we have not tasted or experienced that we would have wanted to before we died. Okay, what we're doing in those moments is realizing that even though there's this song we're born remembering, there's a chance we're not going to experience it because we are finite, because we are destined for death, because we are small. And we had to ask this question, why is that? Why is it that we are finite? And the key is in verse 3, when Moses says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And the reason Tristan had to read that incredibly long passage is because that's what Moses is referring to. He's saying the reason we are finite is because once our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, the beautiful, perfect world that God created where death didn't exist, all of that was messed up. And part of the curse because of our rebellion against God is God pronounced this, this curse of death and said, you were created from dust and to dust you shall return. The reason we are temporary and not eternal is because of the sin that exists in the universe. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. He says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to fear of you. So happy new year. Go in peace. We're going to come back next week and talk about what it means. No, there's something when you read this as Americans that are, we all drift towards this self-centeredness of thinking we're pretty much sure we're right about pretty much everything that we do. Um, when you read those verses, the part that jump off the page, be honest, what are the two words that stand out more than anything else? It's wrath and anger, right? The, the, don't those stand out like what is God thinking? Who does he think he is to be mad at me? What did I do? I never did anything to him. What's he so upset for? We think that we are so in the right that whenever we hear this idea of God being angry or wrathful, we think, that's not my God. I would never worship a God who's full of wrath. And and I think we can be honest and say, uh, I don't worship a a God who is wrath either. The Bible doesn't talk about a God who is wrath. The The Bible talks about a God who is just and holy. And that's the important distinction to make. God is not wrathful and angry as an attribute. That's not a part of his character. What is a part of his character is justice and holiness. And so a just and a holy God can have no other response to sin and evil than wrath and anger. Okay, so that's why um, some of the old theologians called uh, God's uh, wrath his strange work. It's something that God would not naturally do were it not for the sin that existed in the world. And so when you look at this, again, anger and wrath jump off the pages at us. What should jump off the pages at us is verse 8. Look at verse 8 again. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Okay, that's the thing that should stand out to us is saying we have been found out. 
right? A lot of us, we have this public image we present. We have this persona of we're pretty much pretty good people. And the parts of me that you see and the parts of me that you know seems like a pretty good person. But what Moses is doing is saying that it's the secret things in our lives. It's the hidden things in our lives. It's the part of your, your thought life you would never share with someone. It's the, it's the conversation you have behind someone's back. It's the way that you uh, find yourself judgmental or, or, or uh, um, e- uh, thinking evil thoughts towards other people. It's those things that we think we do a good job keeping secret and hidden and stuffed in the closet. That Moses is saying those things is what God sets out in the light. He exposes our sin. He exposes our iniquities and our rebellion and says that because we are sinners, because verse 8 applies to you and applies to me, that's why God is just to have wrath and anger. Uh, There's a famous story that in the 1900s, the London Times sent uh, an assignment to six different writers. And they said, please send us your best essay answering the question, what is wrong with the world today? And no one remembers five of the essays. The one essay that everyone remembers said this, Dear sirs, I am, period. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. In that short and pithy response, what what Chesterton is doing is saying the problem with the world is nothing out there, it's something in here. I am the thing that's wrong with the world. I think G.K. Chesterton would look at verse 8 and say, my secret sins, my iniquities, that's describing what's wrong in the world today. But again, we don't want to believe that. We want to push it aside somewhere else. And so if we are truly honest the question we should be asking is not why is God so angry? We should be asking why am I so sinful? Why am I so broken? And the Bible gives us uh, a very clear picture that none of us are exempt from that uh, critique. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or 1 John 1 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So think back about Moses writing this. Why is Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years? Because of their rebellion and sin. Okay, why, why is the editor of the book of Psalms putting this ahead of all the Psalms about the exile when they're living in Babylon? It's because of Israel's sin and rebellion. Or, or, or that idea of the song we were born remembering. Why are we born remembering a song instead of singing it? It's because of our sin and our wickedness and our rebellion. None of us are, guilt, are, are free from the guilt that these verses point us to. So again, that's the part that feels depressing, right? Like none of us are exempt from that. But there's hope, right? There's more verses we're not really going to leave here. And the, the hint that we get is even in the verse of 11, where Moses asks this uh, rhetorical question. He says, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And in the Psalms in particular, the idea of the fear of God is one of the most important things. Fear does not mean I'm scared and I'm trembling and I'm, I'm worried someone's going to hit me. What a fear is, is saying, I understand who God is in all of his glory. And I see who I am in all of my smallness and finiteness compared to God. And it makes me humble to realize how great God is. It's an awareness of the gap that exists between us and God. And what we know from Scripture is that where the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom, which is where Moses goes next to wrap up this passage. And what he's going to do is say, that this rhetorical question, who considers God according to the fear of him? Well, if someone does, if you fear God correctly, if you understand God's greatness and our smallness correctly, you get to pray these next six verses. And in these six verses is the answer to every question we've been asking this morning. It's six beautiful prayers. Listen to this. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? 
Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Like, well, each of those prayers is a unique and significant thing that we all should spend this next week praying, all the rest of our lives praying. The first one, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Notice Moses, Moses doesn't say, make me eternal. Make it so I will never die and never return to dust. He says, give me a proper accounting of my days. Help me to understand that my days are limited so that with the time I have, I live with wisdom and worship of who God is. I think one of the best examples I've heard of this, and it pains me to even admit it as a Green Bay Packers fan, but the Minnesota Vikings quarterback, Kirk Cousins, is a follower of Christ. And what he did is he figured out the average lifespan of an American male and from where he was at, how, his age, how many months he had to live if he was going to live the average lifespan. And he took a jar and put it on his front porch and filled that jar with rocks, equaling the number of how many months the average lifespan would have left. And every month, the first of the month, he takes a rock out to remind him, to teach him to number his days, that he can have a heart of wisdom, understanding who he is in light of who God is. Then, then Moses says, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? And in that prayer for God to return is a recognition of the need for all of us to repent, right? You, you can't ask God to come near unless you have first realized you were the one who ran away, right? It's, it's like that famous story, of the parable of Jesus of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, we are that son who has run away in sin. And going to the father and asking for forgiveness requires us to go towards him in repentance, to turn around and go the other way. And so, and so with Moses saying, return, O Lord, it's this prayer of repentance, asking God to be near. And then he says, and I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. What do you satisfy us with your steadfast love? That song we're born remembering, right? That longing that we have, that sunset that's so beautiful and makes us want to cry. All of those things are pointing to Jesus and saying, Lord, satisfy us with your love, not with the things of the world, not with all the things I think if I have enough of that, I'll finally be happy and content. Satisfy us with the love of God. Again, I think I mentioned Lamentations 3 in every sermon for the last like six months, but this idea of the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Okay, the reason God can satisfy us in the morning with his love is his love never ceases. It is there every single day when we turn to him. And so, so if you look at the wilderness that Moses is writing to, the Israelites, why, were, why did they sin? Because they weren't satisfied with what God had given them. They wanted meat instead of manna. They, they, they wanted uh, an easy path instead of having to, to, to fight their enemies. They had all these things that they weren't content with, and it led to their sin. Uh, the same with us, right? Our lack of satisfaction, the fact that we are not content with the life that God has given us is why we stumble into sin. And sin, instead, that is countered with this prayer, Lord, satisfy us with your steadfast love. May the love of God be the only thing that we look for, to for satisfaction in our lives. Then he says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. So because they sinned and they were punishment, he's, that Moses is able to say, Lord, please make us glad. Bring joy into our lives. And, and that's a prayer that understands the character of God. Right? Like in Ephesians 3 when Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. 
God's goodness, his steadfast love is so wonderful that the answer to our prayers is always better than we ever would have thought of even asking. Or back to the story of the prodigal son. What does the father do when the son returns? He throws a huge party. He throws a rager and says, let's have such a good time because my son who was lost has finally come home again. That's the goodness of our heavenly father that we see. And then he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. He's saying, asking that, that not just him, but the subsequent generations, his children and his children's children and so on, that they would understand the work that God has done. That, that as they grow with that song they were born remembering, that they would find their satisfaction in God and who he is. And so, so each of those prayers is a prayer of extreme confidence in the character of God. After Moses listing all of our sins and the reason God is just and fair to punish us for our sins, he then doesn't end with saying, well, I guess we're hosed now. There's nothing we can do. He says, no, I know the character of God. And because I know the character of God, I can ask for him to do these good things in our lives. And that character of God that Moses knew is the same character that we see in Jesus in the New Testament. So in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 3.24, the very next verse, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or, Roman, or John 1.8 if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or the first half of Romans six twenty three, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, at the end of the day, our hope is not in anything other than the character and goodness of God. And having that confidence like Moses allows us to pray those kinds of prayers. The one thing I didn't mention yet is verse 17, though. So, and, and, and it ends by saying, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so what this is doing is this psalm wraps up here in verse 17. Moses is, is on the edge of the promised land. He, he knows he's not going to enter the promised land because he is a sinner and God has already told him that the discipline for his sin is he won't get to cross the river Jordan and go into the promised land. So Moses' last words here, his prayer, is that the favor of God would be upon us and that the work of the Israelites' hands would be established. He's saying as they go into the promised land, as they build homes, as they build cities, as they, as they farm crops, all these things, may the work of their hands be established and firm and secure. But remember, this is the beginning of book four, the Psalms for the people who are in exile. And the reason this Psalm is connecting with them is because they realize that their work was not established. Israel did not remain their home. It was not their dwelling place forever because even though they had been brought safely into the promised land, they, like us, are still sinners who rebelled against God's goodness. And because of that, they went into exile and the work of their hands was not established, which is why we get back to the place where we're at now. Why do we have longings that we don't know the answer to? Why do we have a song we're born remembering and not know what it's pointing to? And the reason is because we are all sinners. Like that Genesis 3 passage, from dust we came to dust we shall return. We, they, Adam and Eve could no longer dwell in God's presence because of their sin. Then we get to Psalm 90, and Israel cannot dwell in God's presence because of their sin. But that's not the end of the story, right? As followers of Christ, we know that the answer is found in Jesus, who, who in John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived among us. He set up his tent among us. And that, because of the work of Jesus, we get to Revelation 21 at the end of time. 
And it says, I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them forever. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Okay, all of that's talking about the work of Jesus. And so when we pull back and we say, that song you were born remembering is actually a melody that points to Christ. Okay, we are homeless people who are longing for a dwelling place, but Jesus, because of his love, he left his home in heaven. He no longer dwelt in heaven, but dwelt among us in all of our sin and our muck. Right? The eternal God who has existed outside of time entered space-time so he could live on the earth and obey in all the ways that we fail. Even though we're finite and human and destined for death and God can never die, somehow mysteriously and ways that we will never fully understand, God himself took on flesh and died on the cross in our place. The one who's existed from everlasting to everlasting breathed his last on the cross so that you and I can find hope and new life in him because he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, defeating sin and death. All of our secret sins and iniquities, the things that separate us from God, Jesus triumphed over them on the cross, putting them to shame and inviting us to find our eternal home in him. And that's the gift of the uh, grace that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these uh, ancient words that point to such present and timeless truths, uh, that we are just like Moses with longings and desires that nothing in this world can meet. So I pray that we would be satisfied with your love and your love alone, that we wouldn't look to the things of this world to, to, to do more than they can offer, but instead we would run to you as our dwelling place. Uh, if there's, if there's uh, those of us here that haven't yet found that home in you, I pray that you would soften our hearts to come to you in repentance, to, to look to you for our only hope and salvation. Uh, for those of us here that have, have already put our trust in you, I pray that, that this would be a time of building our faith, that we would recognize the gift that we've been given in your son. I pray that as we go to our tables now and as we process these, uh, um, this passage, that you would be in our midst in a special way and, and build up our souls in your love. In your name we pray, amen. Um, well, this is your first time here. We're so glad you're worshiping with us. The reason we sit around tables is so that after we, we dive deep into a passage of Scripture like this, we can then turn inwards to our tables and process what God is showing us through his word. So I have some questions on the screen behind me to kind of get us going, but, but these are more like guidelines than actual rules. They're, they're not like something you have to follow exactly. So just whatever you feel comfortable and led sharing, uh, feel free to be honest and vulnerable, but at the same time know that everyone at your table will love you well no matter what your answer is. So the first question. Uh, in what ways do you feel homeless? What longings do you have and how has God been your dwelling place? Secondly, how does your heart respond to the Psalms reminder that we are temporary and that death is inevitable? How does Jesus tasting death for us change your heart's response? And then the third one, which of the six prayers in verses 12 through 17 stand out to you the most and why? And then how will you pray each of those this coming week? That's more of an assignment than a question. Let's pray those this coming week as we go. So we'll do this for about 10, sec uh, 10 seconds. Uh, that'll be a little short. <laughs> you better be quick to answer. Okay, uh, 10 minutes or so, and then we'll go to a time of worship. Thanks. I hope your uh, discussion was, went well. Um, we're going to turn now to time of reflecting at the communion table and... Uh, this I always find the communion introduction um, challenging because it's it's a hard 
can be a hard thing, but it can be a, it's a blessed, blessed thing, but it's a difficult thing to have to put ourselves in this really place where we need to be really humble. And I wanted to say the introduction was Colbert's sermon because from beginning to end, that walks us right to the table of communion. Um, we practice open communion here. If you're a follower of Christ, please join us. Um, we worship Christ through this act, what God the Father did by sending him here. But I do really think um, that really jumped out at me the first part of that psalm about the majesty of God and then the step to the communion table and that I don't think without being truly humble when we take communion, we can wrap our minds around the majesty and the glory of what Jesus did dying on the cross for us. If you come to the communion table and you're busy thinking about other stuff, it's just not going to be the same thing. So I would challenge us today to, to take the bread and the juice and remember that Christ made that open door that he was talking about in his sermon for us to join him in that home. I mean, we all have houses here. I hope if you don't, we'll help you find one. <laughs> um, but do we all have homes I mean, we were just talking at our table um, about if you move a lot, sometimes home is a hard thing to have a feeling about. And yet there's this home, this promise that Jesus gave us of a home that's going to be perfect. But without the table and without what, what Christ did that that represents, um, we have a house. And that's it. So if you'd stand with me, we're going to uh, recite a thing that we have done before. And I just challenge you to really think about your relationship with Christ as you remember what he did for you. So if you would join me in this, this would be an offering of prayer. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Amen.